Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, and we have really tried to be careful with authorities and experience on this horrific war or invasion, or as Mr. Putin calls it, operation. We've been honored with the guests we've had, starting with Angela Stent, General Hodges, General Kimmett, and now Seth Jones. He's with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And in America, he is our definitive expert on guerrilla warfare. Seth, thank you so much for joining us. General Kimmett was chilling as an infantry officer describing the guerrilla war to come in urban Ukraine. Describe what we will see. Well, I think what we're likely to see is Russian forces continuing to push into urban terrain in Ukraine, into cities like Kyiv in particular, it's the capital, and the uh, Russians to be met with fire from atop buildings, snipers, fire from inside buildings, fire from around buildings as the entire Ukrainian population rises up to attempt to pick apart Russian forces in cities. So it's those kinds of uh, campaigns destroy uh, cities. So we're bound to see sad destruction in Ukrainian cities. Does Russia have the material or critically, do they have the will to make Kyiv look like Aleppo? The Russians do have the ability to use artillery, to uh, use aircraft and to drop both dumb and smart bombs in Kyiv and to turn it into Aleppo. What they don't have is uh, the ability to, uh, to, to hold the territory. The Russians didn't have to do it in Aleppo. They had the Syrians, they had Lebanese Hezbollah hold the territory. The Russian forces will have to do it. And I don't know that they'll they'll be able to stomach the bloodshed that has, uh, I mean, they've already lost more soldiers in two weeks in Ukraine than the U.S. lost in 20 years in Afghanistan. And Seth, we have from the U.S. authorities the threat of possibly biological or chemical weapons being used on Ukraine uh, by Russia. This according to statements over the weekend from this administration. What would the U.S. response be to something like that? Well, uh, I, I'll tell you what it should be. I mean, the uh, I, I don't know why the U.S. is now holding back on providing uh, aircraft, including MiGs, uh, to the Ukrainians. The Russians are willing to ramp up this war right now. And if they use chemical weapons, uh, I mean, this we're we're in a very different uh, ball game. I mean, this these are war crimes. So the uh, the president of Russia should be treated as such if that's what he uses. So uh, you said uh, if that's what this is, and I do wonder because right now we're hearing so many talks about talks, possible negotiations, some possible optimism. Do you hear any optimism from the developments on the ground and from the intel that you're getting that there could be an off-ramp to this conflict? I think it's always important to talk about off-ramps and to look for them. I do not see the Russians at this point looking for an off-ramp that is acceptable to the Ukrainian population or NATO right now. That is my worry, is that we can talk about off-ramps, but an acceptable one, we'll have to see. 
Seth Jones, over the weekend, there were just terrific articles, thoughtful articles by experts outlining the failure of the political and military leadership in Russia to put together the kind of legitimate force that you served under and advised to. How weak is Russia? Do we, do we deceive ourselves? Well, I think what we've seen with uh, the Russians right now is they have been entirely incapable of putting together an effective ground invasion in Ukraine. They haven't done much of that in the past. They've also entirely misread, and this is part of it, it's partly an intelligence problem, entirely misread both how the West was going to respond as well as the Ukrainian population. So these are huge strategic miscalculations by senior Russian government officials, and I haven't seen them improve that much over the last three weeks. How far away is a sniper? This is the core of your work, and this is really difficult work, folks, that Mr. Jones does, Dr. Jones, excuse me. Seth Jones, how far away is a sniper when a sniper is sniping? Well, you can be at very close range. Uh, you know, you, you can be 100 feet. Uh, you can be uh, much further than a football field, much further than 100 yards. You could be over 1,000. Uh, depends on the type of weapon uh, that you have, the type of sniper rifle, as well as uh, how, how accurate and good you are. So you've got options, which is the, the point. That's the urban warfare. Seth, I'm looking at the situation shifting further west. Over the weekend, as you saw, and I'm sure you're more on top of than us, we saw a strike on a military base in Ukraine, 15 kilometers away from Poland. And we saw a language change from the Russians as well when they declared that convoys of military surprise from NATO to Ukraine were now seen as, quote, legitimate targets. So can we just start with how you reacted, how you're thinking about that, quote, legitimate targets on the backs now of military supplies from NATO to Ukraine? Well, I'm not surprised at all that uh, that the Russians are starting to conduct these kinds of attacks. I mean, the reason is very straightforward, is uh, the Russian ground force are getting hammered right now with javelins and stingers, so both the, the ground and air elements. So this is an attempt, because the, the, the supplies coming into Ukraine have been so successful uh, at hitting Russian forces, they're now trying to interdict and destroy. So I, I'm not surprised at all. The concern is how close they're getting to the Polish border and one stray missile that goes into Poland and hits 82nd Airborne forces puts this war in a very different direction. Well, Seth, can you talk to me about that? Because for myself, certainly not an expert from the outside looking in, just how far is 15 kilometers in your world? It's not very far at all. I mean, literally one cruise missile or even a ballistic missile that's uh, a guidance package is off kilter, doesn't it malfunctions. and that's that's not a very long distance for that stray missile to go uh, in a different direction. It's happened with U.S. Uh, cruise, ballistic, and and mortar shells. So uh, again, hit, hitting uh, 82nd Airborne uh, soldiers near the border would 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 kill the U.S. and suddenly we'd be in a different world. Well, and that's where I wanted to go. How high is the threshold for U.S. military for frankly European troops to fight directly with the Russians? Are we getting closer and closer to it? Well, I do think we are getting closer, and and uh, you know the the U.S. has to has to now begin to think about what war would look like if that's the direction the Russians take this. I think the U.S at this point does not want to get directly involved in the war. But if U.S. soldiers are killed by uh, Russian missiles um, coming off of aircraft or, or maritime vessels in the Black Sea, 
um, you, you know, that's going to that's going to be a very difficult decision for the U.S. I mean, the uh, and the American population is going to want a response. Yeah. And that's actually what you said also with a strong response to war crimes, as you called them, with a chemical attack or a biological attack. What would that look like if there were direct combat between U.S. and Russian troops? Well, uh, the the question is is whether if Russian and and U.S. or other NATO troops were engaged in direct combat, uh, could you sort of contain it? I think the issue is, uh, you know, it might start, for example, with aircraft uh, striking various targets. Uh, you know, large numbers of of uh, U.S. forces crossing the border would probably be not the first option. It would probably be uh, air air assets being used and the possibility of having U.S. aircraft uh, taken down. But I think that's sort of inching towards, uh, you know, broader ground engagements. Ground engagements would be a very serious concern. Seth, a clinic as always, and we're lucky to catch up with you. You know that. Seth Jones there of CSIS. great joy. In studio with us is someone with a rarity of rares within England, which is what I call the triangle. Degrees from Cambridge, Oxford, and the London School of Economics. Elsa Lignos with her service to uh, Europe and her Britain, a global head of foreign exchange strategy at RBC. Thrilled to have you in studio uh, today. Euro came at 116, gyrations down to 85, gyrations up that Germany didn't like as well. Where is fair value on Euro war or no war? It's a great question because actually when we updated our forecasts following the invasion of Ukraine, we didn't really change them. We kind of nudged the, the short-term mark-to-market but left the year-end forecasts unchanged because a lot of what I thought was going to drive Eurodollar this year is actually playing out. What John just mentioned around you know resetting terminal value um, for the Fed, it's that difference in policy. Does the, and folks, we're talking to someone here with physics and economics, so we're going to go all X-axis on you even though we usually don't do that on uh, Monday. The terminal value is not only about the magnitude of the value, it's about the when of it, out the x-axis. Do we extend our view in war or do we come in closer? A great question and not one I think which anybody can answer at the moment, not least of which policymakers. You know, I think we've seen it both with ECB last week and with Chairman Powell in his testimony. They're trying to maximize their optionality for that precise reason. Elsa, we know that finance ministers are meeting in the Euro region in order to determine what the fiscal spending plan will be going forward, how to support the region. What's currently baked into the Euro? How much fiscal support? There's a little bit in there, but traditionally people have been a little bit skeptical that the Europeans will really deliver because of the opposition from the core, from Germany, the Netherlands, you know, the more hawkish, fiscally hawkish <laughs> countries. And yet in this crisis, we've seen previously unthinkable things happen. So I wouldn't rule anything out, uh, certainly not when you have the escalating situation between Russia and Ukraine. All right, but if we do get some sort of fiscal response, do you expect some upside surprise to the euro? And I ask this because there seems to be a lot of bad news baked in and this divergence between the U.S. and the Euro region, and some people say it has a lot further to go to punish Euro. However, if we do get this fiscal support, that could be a game changer. Do you agree? 
Look, I think it's definitely a game changer in the yield space from the currency point of view. I mean, this is not going to be an easy economic environment for Europe. And the kind of conditions under which we would get that big fiscal support would be the more extreme crisis conditions. You have to balance one against the other. So, you know, don't get me wrong. We've definitely found opportunities to be tactically long euro. We were long euro sterling last week. It worked out very well. But as a core position, I'm not looking to get long euro, you know, targeting the kind of 116s, 118s that a lot of people had at the start of the year. Is this a euro story or is this a dollar story? And I ask this because the dollar has been the haven and continues to be amid this turmoil. Is that really what we're seeing and we'll continue to see going forward? We have seen a lot of independent euro weakness and, and last week was really a story of independent euro strength more just short covering rather than some fundamental shift in outlook. You know, so yes, the dollar has been acting as a haven, but there's been a lot of very specific euro weakness. Look at Euro CAD, Euro Aussie, Euro Kiwi. It's not just been about the dollar. Tell me about the Pacific Rim. In turmoil today, COVID, the war, obviously Russia, China, and all. Just as a general measure, when you wake up in the morning and look at your three Bloombergs, how do you measure stress on the Pacific Rim? In the old days, dollar yen, it was a simple answer. I don't buy that anymore. What's the measurement we should use? Yeah, dollar yen is going through an interesting transition moment. Um, I think the Australian dollar for a lot of people is still that proxy against. for Chinese growth. And you can look at it against the US dollar. You can look at it against the euro. You can, it depends what you're trying to measure. You know, are you trying to measure kind of Russia-Ukraine risks against what's going on in the Pacific Rim? Euro-Aussie is a good way. I, you know, okay, this is fascinating. Aussie renminbi, is it, is it worth looking at for listeners and viewers, again, trying to get a Pacific Rim gauge? So the renminbi is a tricky one only because it's manipulated. Yeah. It's not a kind of clean market proxy. So you go to yen proxy. or do you go to sing dollar? What do so, you So, you know, when, when you look at sing dollar, another one which is which is managed, but the yen, I think, is is actually more interesting than we give it credit for at the moment because it comes back to something you guys were talking about earlier around regime change. And the fact is that depending on what happens to bonds and equities, the combination of the two, we could see dollar yen higher or we could see it quite a lot lower. And I don't think markets should be certain yet that dollar okay. yen is just up. What is your call on yen here? I mean, it's stunning. I, was, I mentioned David Melpass years ago at Bear Stearns, now at the World Bank, looking at 120 or even 130 week, week, week yen. But that was a long time ago. What is the RBC call on yen? I mean, we do have a call for dollar yen trading higher into the end of the year um, towards 120. The, the fact is, though, there are a lot of downside risks there that make it very difficult to put on long-term positions in the yen. Clearly, if equities roll out of bed, you'll get mm -hmm. yen going up against everything bar the U.S. dollar. I, I like that, John. Instead of saying plunge, we can say roll out of bed. I mean, it's... It's the same nice. thing, Tom. It's the uh, same like thing. Asselinos, thank it's you. Good. The global head of FX strategy at RBC, looking at some of the dynamics in this FX market this morning. This is a joy. Megan Green has put together a Princeton-Oxford Academics of exceptionally thoughtful and transatlantic essays on economies. She now has to confront war. She is global chief economist at Kroll, but far more at the Chatham House and truly our transatlantic source. Megan Green, I, I want to discuss today Germany and at the bottom, you go all Patrick O'Brien on me, Napoleonic Wars, and you say time is of the essence. What is the time is of the essence for the new German government? Well, I think for the new German government, time is of the essence mostly applies to the policy mix that they're going to be applying to what's going on um, in, with respect to the economy and also uh, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And, and by that, I refer to the policy mix between fiscal and monetary policy. The ECB came out last week 
pretty hawkish, uh, accelerating their tapering process so that they can start hiking rates. Um, if they actually stop buying bonds, though, the ECB won't be right. able to reduce uh, yields from creeping up, particularly in peripheral countries. At the same time, the EU is recognizing it needs to become a big spender on things like defense, subsidies for energy, the green transition. Uh, and so the EU is trying to come together and figure out some way to raise money for that. Um, the time is really <laughs> crucial, though, because the ECB will stop its asset purchases in the third quarter of this year. It could take that long for EU leaders to actually put together some kind of package so that the EU well, can reduce its, its energy depends on Russia and other things. The nightmare scenario is that both sides fail, so the ECB stops buying bonds and the EU doesn't pull it together. And then Europe's really in a bind. Are you optimistic they can go all Conrad Adenauer? At the beginning of the German post-World War II experiment, they didn't have a choice. They had to rebuild. Is that enthusiasm out there? Is there a Conrad Adenauer out there? Well, there is enthusiasm for that, surely. But we just, of course, had the pandemic. And the EU came together and issued debt jointly to fund a response to the pandemic. I'd say that crisis was probably a bit more acute than this one. And so there is a question about whether they can do it this time. The new German government's coalition agreement forbids any more recovery funds. Uh, the German finance minister is pretty set against it. There are other frugal countries in Northern Europe that are, also aren't interested. So I, as we, always is the case with the EU, time will tell. And they'll probably do something at the very last minute. But in the past, the ECB has always had to be the one to step in uh, and, and be the only game in town. And so that may well happen this time as of, well. Of course, they don't have that much ammunition, Megan. So I do wonder whether a recessionary environment in Europe is not a given, but seems much more of a certainty to you. I think stagflation is very likely in Europe. I'm not sure that they'll go into recession, but certainly a scenario where you've got virtually no growth across Europe and really high inflation. Uh, that's my base case scenario at this point. And, and that, of course, is the ECB's absolute worst nightmare. So in my view, you know, the Fed is tapering first and then will hike rates. The ECB has been intent on taking the same path. I think actually the ECB is making a big mistake and should have done it the other way around, played with rates while continuing to buy assets, because that's going to keep borrowing costs low so that European governments can borrow and spend in the very short term. In the U.S., uh, given the fact that there does seem to be a similar reliance on the Fed to uh, try to equalize some of the inflation, how realistic is that? I mean, if the U.S. doesn't see stagflation, how concerned are you about other economic ramifications, particularly when it comes to inequality? Well, so, uh, you know, I think the, the U.S. is further away from stagflation than Europe is. Our recovery is much further ahead. Um, but, you know, the Fed absolutely has to start hiking. If not for any other reason, then it needs to maintain some credibility, keep inflation expectations grounded. In terms of inequality, actually, you know, I think the Fed gets a worse rap than it probably should. It, the Fed's winding down its bond buying purchase, uh, pur purchases program, so it's finishing tapering. But, uh, you know, and that has really boosted asset prices. But we don't know the alternative. If the Fed hadn't stepped in to make markets in March 2020, <clears throat> unemployment would be a whole lot higher. And that would have implications for inequality as well. So mm -hmm. I think the role of central banks in, in driving inequality higher is more ambiguous than most economists uh, really suggest. I think, you know, we don't know what the alternative scenario might have been, but it would have been lower growth. And that might have been mm -hmm. worse for low-income families. Megan, you mentioned earlier Europeans frugal countries. Is America a frugal country? 
That's a great question. Um, you know, our debt burden would suggest not really. Uh, we did spend really big in the pandemic. That's partly why we've seen broader-based inflation uh, in the aftermath than, say, Europe, for example. Um, that being said, it's, it's become really difficult for Congress to pass any kind of fiscal spending package. Uh, and so the U.S. is getting more frugal than it was, certainly. But, you know, I think I view it as us taking our foot off the accelerator a little bit rather than slamming on the brakes in terms of fiscal stimulus. I think we could still get more pieces of the Build Back Better legislation uh, passed through Congress's kind of one-off pieces of legislation. So there might be a bit more spending ahead, but it will be you know, over 10 years and largely backloaded. Um, so I think the, the brunt of the fiscal stimulus that the U.S. has to provide is probably behind us. What might come up now is, is support for uh, Americans who are paying really high prices at the pump. Um, so we might get some sort of alleviation given the spike in energy prices that we have seen and are bound to see going forward. Looking for something similar out of Europe too. Megan, wonderful to catch up with you, especially on Europe and the United States. Megan Green there of the Kroll Institute. Paul Sweeney and Tom Keen, let's get right to it with Seabreeze down in Florida. Doug Cass joins us this morning. Doug, you and I remember 1985 when Bolivia and a bunch of uh, banana republics said we're going to lose our shirt and tin, and they forced LME to shut down the tin market so the tin cartel could be restructured and saved. We've got this. I had Chrysler debt, you know, with Ratner 2009. Same idea where a market maker takes over and says, you can't make money going the other way. That happened the other day in Nickel in London. Did they do the right thing to shut down the London Metal Exchange, or should they have let the longs prosper? Uh, that's not my area of expertise, to be quite honest. But you've been, come on, but you've been doing this for years, I believe, in, I believe that um, they should have kept the market open, and uh, I believe more of a laissez-faire attitude towards these exchanges. I think it's more dangerous when you close markets. I agree. And now we've got a uh, you know, is it, Go ahead. Well, we've got a close Russia market right now. What does that signal yeah, to you I, when yeah. they try to open? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, uh, I think it was Benjamin Disraeli, who was England's exchequer, once famously said, what we've learned from history is that we haven't learned from history. <laughs> All these things rhyme. Um, and we lived in this flat, uh, interconnected world um, and contagion, contagion is, is omnipresent. Um, to me, what you're, what you're saying is that we should have a sense of history. We should read books. We should go to our library because it gives us hints how to, na how to navigate uh, this market, which has seemingly no memory from day to day. You know, Doug, that's kind of where I wanted to go here. I mean, it, there's so much geopolitical risk out there that I think a lot of investors are really having a hard time pricing in, irrespective of what the Federal Reserve is going to do, irrespective of what corporate earnings are going to do. What do you tell your clients when they call up saying, how should I price in the risk of Russia or with China still having lockdown discussions here in, in key industrial parts of the country? How do you kind of walk them or talk them uh, off the ledge? Yeah, I think that as we um, as we exist today in mid-March, to quote um, a Creedence Clearwater as John Fogarty, there's a bad moon rising. Yep. Um, I spent the last few months saying that I'm selling what they're buying. And it's clear to me that in looking at the massive declines of all these uh, speculative jujaws 
and now the broader market that the that the era of irresponsible bullishness is now over and the probability is that early january late uh december 2021 marked a very important broad and distributive market top so i expect that we'll see more fragility more volatility and less vol- and less liquidity in the markets in the months ahead much like we've seen recently and the risks have certainly been skewed to the downside and they re- they remain so in terms of I mean, the critical question, Poland, Tom, is 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 how to navigate a market right. with such volatility and such uncertainty. And as I started by saying, I go to my library, and there's one book that answers that answered to me the question of how I should be navigating a period of uncertainty, and it's contained in a single book. Um, you guys have probably not even read the book, but it's Seth Klarman's Margin of Safety. Uh, which was written in 1991, I believe. And the book cost about $40. <laughs> you can't buy it now. Uh, unfortunately, it's very expensive. If you go on eBay or Amazon, it's almost $3,000 a copy. And as Buffett said, price is what you pay. Value is what what you get. And my advice is to read the book, borrow it from a rich friend so you can learn a couple of lessons. <laughs> the first lesson is that Clarvin makes the case that us value investors always make, that investors are too often lured by the prospect of instant millions. And the message should sound familiar to investors in ARC, um, in looking at her constituent holdings, uh, in looking at many right. of our, you know, Seabreeze Shorts, DNA, yes, Sleep Number One, Lightning, right. Berkeley, all the Car- Carvana, all that. But, but the second thing and the most important thing to specifically answer your question, Paul, um, how, do you, how do you practically and tactically guide yourself through a difficult market filled with uncertainty. And I'm of the basic view that we're in this opportunistic trading and not investing buy and hold market. Right. And he tells this great story, and it's just going to, it's brief, uh, Seth does. He talks about an old story about the market craze in sardine trading when the sardines disappeared from their traditional waters in Monterey, California. Uh, yep. The commodity yeah. traders bid them up and the price of a can of sardines soared. One day, a buyer decided to treat himself to the, an expensive meal and actually opened the can and started eating. He immediately became ill, Ill and told the seller the sardines were no good. The seller said, you don't understand. These are not eating sardines. They are trading sardines. <laughs> so uh, I basically have adopted a, an approach of a trading sardine, not an eating sardine approach. Keeping yeah. my VAR loan, something you discussed on Friday on the show, Tom, value at risk. Yeah. And uh, we were up in January at Seabreeze. We are up in February, and month-to-date we're up as well can, in March. Can you measure or find cover in persistency of revenue growth, persistency of EBITDA margins, persistency of net income? Does that have value here? It has less value in a rising rate environment, Tom. I agree yeah. with that. Absolutely. So, Doug, I mean, you know, a lot of our listeners are looking at their apps of their brokerage accounts because we all now have gone digital and everything in financial services. Nobody goes into a branch anymore, and they're seeing their S&P uh, index funds down 12%. Is the S&P going to be higher at year-end on a year-over-year basis, do you think? I have absolutely no clue. Right. But I, w- I will tell you, that you know, I, I I'm very I could comfortably give you the bear case, yep. but on the positive side, let me explain what tempers my negativity. Um, the S and P is down by 11.8 percent in the first 48 trading days of the year. 
Yeah. It's the f- fourth worst start of the year in history. The worst five starts prior to this were in 2009, 2020 with COVID, yeah. uh, the Depression, 33, 35, and 1982. Yeah, and the Red Sox, and in 1964. All those periods, they mounted tremendous comebacks to end the year in a strong positive territory. And secondly, um, bonds are down 5%. That's on pace, believe it or not, for the worst year in history. And the second worst was under 3%. Finally, it feels much worse, Tom, but the S&P's max drawdown this year was 13%. And that's right in line with the median intra-year drawdown since 1928. Mm -hmm. So these factors keep me from getting terribly bearish. Well, and we haven't seen the catharsis yet earlier. Speaking of catharsis, Doug, we didn't want Jan for investment-like. Come on, the Yankees take the big guy from Minnesota and the Twins. Is it game-changing for the dreaded Yankees? I direct message you, and I'll repeat what I said. I hate Sanchez. I literally think he's the worst base runner in baseball. He's certainly the worst defensive catcher. I'm going to miss Gio. Um, Josh is great. Had to have been done. Now we need a first baseman or a center fielder. <laughs> Very good. Doug Cass, thank you so much. Mike DI lights yeah. up. It's Cass. Bing the bing bing This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.